good to see you all this morning. I'm grateful to the Lord for giving us another week to be together as his people. Uh, I'll invite you to turn with me to John chapter 5. In a moment I'll be reading from verse 30 down to verse 47. And our intention this morning is to walk through this entire section of scripture. It's all of a piece. And so we have a lot to think about and a lot to hear from God's word. I would invite you, before we read, would you look with me at a few things that he says at the beginning here of this passage. In verses 30 and 31, Jesus has just claimed a union with the Father that shares in the very divine essence. He has made strong claims. In verse 30 here, he's going to refer to the same essential unity that he brought up in verses 19 and 20. He'll say here, You see in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own as I hear, it's from the Father, as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will but the will of him who sent me. He is still speaking about this inescapable, this necessary union between himself and the Father. The very sorts of claims that we've already seen are leading his opponents to plan his death. It's not unnatural then what we see him do in the text for us this morning. What he does as he continues is he raises the notion of testimony. Testimony provided to confirm his claims. Their own law system needed this. They stated in their their law that none may be believed as a witness in a court of law when he testifies of himself. He's going to state plainly in John 8, 14 that the fact that their law states that does not negate the truthfulness of his self-testimony, no matter what those laws state. But here, for the sake of argument, he grants the concept of a need for corroborating testimony from a witness. Testimony that is going to confirm and corroborate what he himself has said about this relationship, about who he is as the son sent from the father. He says in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. He's granting to them for the sake of argument this necessity. And so the question this morning then that he addresses is this, is there any corroborating witness testimony to establish the claims that I've just been making? So let's begin by hearing how Jesus describes this. I'll read from verse 30 down to verse 47 from the English Standard Version. If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Our Lord continues in this way. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. 
And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. There is a budding accusation in the situation that we're reading about that sparked the whole monologue here that we're amid from Jesus. Remember verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The budding accusation is that of blasphemy. They'll tell him in John 10, 33, that they're about to stone him for blasphemy. Matthew 26 records the trial before the Jewish high priest, where as soon as Jesus affirms that he is the Christ, the Son of God, the Jewish council declares him guilty of blasphemy. This is what's coming. And now that Jesus has made clear what we saw last week about the nature of his relationship with the Father, he proceeds, as it were, to just go ahead and enter into the courtroom. From verses 30 to 39, we'll hear him mention witnesses six times and testimony four times. He's come right into the courtroom. And in verse 32, he presents his accompanying witness. You see, he says there, there is another who bears witness about me. As we'll see, this witness he refers to is the Lord God Almighty, his own Father. The witness from God is multifaceted. And because of the nature of it, it is unavoidable and it is undeniable. So that by the end of this paragraph where Jesus had entered the courtroom as the defendant. By the end of this paragraph, it will be his opponents who will be sitting in the defendant's chair and facing a verdict. This is the very flow of Jesus' words, and so our progress this morning is shaped that way as well. We'll see this in two parts. Verses 32 to 37, we will see the multifaceted witness from the Father. Verses 32 to 37a. Verse 37b to verse 47 will be the second part of this morning. We hear Jesus' pronouncement of verdict. And we're going to summarize it by saying his verdict against them is that of unfaithful stewards. He declares them to have been unfaithful stewards. First, let's hear what he says about the witness that the Father has provided, the multifaceted witness. It, it is all witness that God is responsible for. Verse 32, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. 
And he's about to mention several ways in which the Father has directly done just that, born witness. But before he does that, he calls one human witness to the stand. He starts with John the Baptist. In verse 33, you sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. We've seen that sending of John. That's recorded for us in John chapter 1 and the interaction between them. We saw it in verses 19 to 28 of John chapter 1. And it was very clear then, John bore witness to the truth, even to the very truth that Jesus is claiming here that precipitated this conversation. He told them back then in John 1, 26, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. You remember when he said that? Two verses later, right out in public, he points at Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He said of Jesus that Jesus was before him, even though John the Baptist is older than Jesus. And in verse 34 of that chapter, he bore witness to this. He said, This is the Son of God. This is what he stated out there in public. He bore witness to the truth. Now, make no mistake, that testimony of John's is not testimony apart from the Father. John 1.7 said, there came a man sent from God whose name was John. This is, this is a part of the multifaceted testimony that the Father provides. But this witness, you could say, is a divine witness that comes indirectly. Then It comes through the work of John the Baptist. Jesus' driving point is going to be that God has personally and sufficiently issued direct witness concerning his son. And so Jesus has no need of human testimony in order to be established. That's why he says what he says in verses 34 and 35. He explains why he has brought John the Baptist up. You see, he says there, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You see, he's reminding them of their own response to this testimony. For their own sake, he reminds them of something more direct and recognizable to them. That witness of John while he was around was a burning and shining lamp, he says, and producing a light that they for a time were willing to rejoice over. You see his point. You were willing to rejoice for a while in that light. But verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. So here comes this other, another who bears witness about him. We find now direct divine testimony to the fact that Jesus has been sent by the Father. There are two of these facets of the Father's witness that we see. One in verse 36 and one in verse 37. Look at verse 36. Jesus says, The works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me. Many have pointed out, and we've mentioned it here before, that John, in John's gospel, describes some things differently than they are described in the synoptic gospels, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He uses different terms in a number of places. 
we've highlighted that when, when the synoptic gospels speak of Jesus' miracles, they use words to describe the mighty deeds, the, 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 the power in them, whereas John tends to call them signs because his point is in highlighting the fact that these are meant to show us something, to teach us something as Jesus does these, these deeds. So he uses the word signs. But another word he uses many times in, in his gospel is simply the word works. So in chapter 7, referring to the miracle that he worked among that people of healing a paralytic man, Jesus will say, I did one work and you all marvel. Speaking of this miracle, John 15, 24 will call Jesus' works the works that no one else did. Now you take that that description of the works that the Father has given him to do. Think, too, of what we saw last week, that Jesus, we find him consistently doing things that the Old Testament ascribes to God alone. So Jesus is doing things that Scripture says God does, and Jesus is doing things that only God could do. He's doing things no one else does. Only God could do these things. This should rightly produce the conclusion that Jesus is doing the works of God. The Father has given him in his earthly ministry works to do that only God does. And so these works are a testimony on his behalf from the Father. The second divine testimony that Christ appeals to here, we see in the first half of verse 37. He says, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. And notice that emphasis on the word himself. Even the works that Jesus just spoke of, I suppose you could say in a sense that that's mediated witness from the Father because it's coming through works done by Jesus. But But there is yet more to the Father's testimony concerning his Son. The Father has himself borne witness about me. Now what that could be referring to, many think it is, is it could be a reference to the divine voice that was heard at Jesus' baptism. That would certainly qualify as an example of this. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record that at his baptism, a voice came from heaven and said, You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That would count as a direct witness from the Father, wouldn't it? Concerning his son. And that may well be what Jesus is referring to here. Uh, That won't be the only time that the Father will do that either. The Gospels will record two more times after this when the Father will speak audibly in response to his Son. Matthew 17, 5 and John 12, 28. And those are recording different situations, different events. So there's that. But in addition to that, and I, I, I do suspect that this may be more, in light of what Jesus is about to say, this may be more to the point that Jesus is making. He's going to tell those who are hearing him time and time again that God has been speaking to, preparing the world for his coming for as long as God has been giving revelation. This is what God has been driving to, preparing, teaching about. He's about to say something to that effect here in verse 39, doesn't he? He'll say there, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. He's referring to the Old Testament scriptures when he says that. Scripture has been divine revelation bearing witness about Jesus Christ. 
I further think that that's what Jesus is getting at, at least in part, because of what he says next. Look at the second half of verse 37. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. It seems that that statement makes clear that at least a part of the divine testimony that Jesus is speaking of is the testimony of the Old Testament, that they do not have abiding in them. So this is the presentation of the witness that his father has given. It's multifaceted. It doesn't look like just one thing. He has sent John the Baptist to them. Even more directly, he's given his own works for the son to work right out in front of their eyes. And he even provided his own direct witness, both verbally from heaven and in the testimony of the Old Testament. Now that Jesus has made that plain, the witness of the Father himself concerning these things. Now that it has been inescapably established, uh, and so that they are without excuse, the tone shifts here at this point in our passage. And for the rest of it, Jesus begins to declare a verdict upon these opponents of his. And we could just say that the verdict is a guilty verdict. That's fairly obvious. But guilty of what? What exactly is he condemning them for. And I'd suggest that a good title for that verdict would be to, to, to declare them to be unfaithful stewards. I think that's what he's getting at. He's going to point out their unfaithfulness in their stewardship in four different ways. The first is that they have rejected the path of their faithful forefathers. And I'm drawing that from what we just read in the second half of verse 37. And verse 38, where he says, His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. Can you tell that in those three condemnations that Jesus gives, can you tell that those are statements of guilt? They're not simply neutral statements. His form you have never seen. It's not necessarily a condemnation. It's a condemnation here. You can tell that by the way verse 38 ends. He, he, these three condemnations are ended with, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. If you did, this would not be true. But you don't. So you have never heard his voice. You have never seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you. Many have recognized here a very strong and direct appeal to the history of the Jewish people as Jesus gives these three condemnations. And in part because of the very words that Jesus uses and their relevance in the Old Testament. Moses, think of Moses, Exodus 33, 11. Moses heard his voice, the scriptures tell us. But these are no true followers of Moses. Jacob saw his form. Genesis 32, 30 tells us that, and it tells us that using the exact word that is used here of form in the Greek Old Testament, and which is the Bible that they were using in this time. They're reading their Greek Old Testament Bibles. They're not reading it in Hebrew. This is the word form that is used to describe what Jacob saw when he wrestled with God. That was the encounter that resulted in a name change. 
Right? From that moment on, what was he known as? He was called Israel from that moment forward. Israel saw that form. But these are no true sons of Israel. They have never seen his form. The psalmist in Psalm 119 has hidden, has stored up God's word inside of him. The prophet Jeremiah said this. He said, your words were found and I ate them and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. But these guys, they are no true sons of the prophets. These are unfaithful stewards of what was entrusted to them. And the first evidence of that is that they have utterly rejected the faithful path of the forefathers that came before them. The second piece of evidence hits at the same general point, but it's, it's a, different, uh, a different nuance. We see it in verses 39 and 40. The condemnation here regarding stewardship is that they have mishandled the very scriptures that they say they revere. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. They most definitely did search the scriptures as he says it there. Other translations put that more strongly. You pour over the scriptures. You study them thoroughly. That is true. They prized the scriptures greatly. But in light of what Jesus is saying, all, of, all that that does is only add to the tragedy of the whole thing. They devote themselves to the gift that God gave them, but they completely mishandled it. Thinking that in the study of the law itself, I mean in the reading of the words, that life was coming to them. We have the teaching of one of the leading Jewish rabbis of that day by the name of Hillel, who writes that, quote, the more study of the law, the more life. And elsewhere he says, if a man gains for himself words of the law, he has gained for himself life in the world to come. What a tragic misunderstanding. To excitedly pour over the scriptures, thinking that with every word you take in by your own will, through your own eyes, you're gaining eternal life. And all the while, the pointing of the text itself is just washing past you, unnoticed. What they've missed here, of course, is that there is nothing intrinsically life-giving about studying the scriptures if you fail to discern its content and its purpose. It's a very immediate warning for us today. There's no less a propensity or a risk of making that same mistake today ourselves. Paul will write in Galatians 3.21, if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. One commentator writes that they, they read the words with a wooden and superstitious reverence for the letter and they never penetrated to the great truths to which they pointed. The result is that in the presence of him, I mean, think about the tragedy of this. 
And the, the result is that in the presence of him to whom those scriptures bear witness, in the presence of him who could have given them life, they are antagonistic. Unfaithful stewards who have rejected the faithful path of the fathers, who have mishandled the scriptures that were handed down to them. The third piece of evidence against them is their idolatry. It be a simple way to describe what he says next. In verse 41, he starts to speak about glory. And he uses that word in the sense of honor received, prestige. That word is used that way often. He had said in verse 34, I do not receive testimony from man. And now he says this, starting in verse 41, I do not receive glory from people. But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when, the glo- when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We see something about our Lord here that is very plain. He's made it plain already, and it will be made further And that is that Jesus has no concern for pleasing people so that they might pour glory upon him. It can be a little strange to say because, of course, God's whole intent is to bring glory onto his son. The point that Jesus is making here is that his great desire is for the glory that is received from whom? From the Father, not from people. Is it not a true statement? The one from whom we crave glory and honor is the one that we truly love. And he says to them, I do not crave glory from men, but you do. I know you. In fact, in fact, that's exactly what he says here in verse 42. Literally, he says, I know you, that you do not have the love of God within you. I think it's clearest to take 41 to 44 all at once to notice Jesus' condemnation. The simple fact is, he says, you don't love God. You are completely driven by the praise and approval of man. It explains why you handle the scriptures like you have. It explains why you don't care at all. Even when you see the undeniable stamp of my father, on the works that I'm doing in front of you. It explains why you don't care about that. Remember what we just saw. They just witnessed a cripple from, for, for several decades healed right in front of them. And all they care about is that their laws pertaining to the Sabbath were violated. They say nothing about the miracle, about the, heal, the, the restoration of suffering. They say nothing about it. What they cared about was that it challenged their authority in the eyes of the people, because it broke their prohibitions. They don't love God. They love being held in high esteem. Obviously, this doesn't describe all of the Jewish people in his time. We see many examples in the Gospels of of godly Jewish men and women who were reading their scriptures and who it leads them to things like this. It says of one that she was waiting for the consolation of Israel sensed the need, sensed God's promise to meet that need and was waiting. We see that kind of expectation. But these Jewish leaders, they find Jesus' condemnation. 
I think the best way to hear the description he gives in verse 43 of people coming in their own name, you see he says there, I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Coming in their own name seems to be a a simple description of someone coming under their own authority as opposed to coming with the mandate approval of God. They're not coming in God's name, so they're coming in their own name. And what it does is it brings up memories of Old Testament times of the emergence of false prophets, which, by the way, is not just an Old Testament phenomenon. In their own history, in recent times, they've dealt with false messiahs. There will be multiple after Jesus as well that will be often received and greeted and encouraged. But who are not coming in God's name. They're coming in their own name. What was the difference between the false prophets who came on their own authority and the true prophets who came speaking from God? Well, here's one. The false prophets told the people what they wanted to hear. The true prophets usually told the people what they didn't expect to hear or didn't want to hear. And so I would suggest that the idea here is essentially this. If you've decided to operate in that way, you've decided to care about the glory that you will receive from one another so that you only receive people who tell you what you want to hear and who, and who tell you what is popular among men, if that's what you've decided to do, then how do you think you will ever believe when the true God actually does send someone to you in his own name? And my friends, is this not a reality that we ourselves must constantly hear and be warned about and be on guard against? We have to be clear and honest with ourselves about ourselves. That our default is to be people who love to be confirmed in our own ways and thoughts. It's just who we are. In other words, we're people who love to be told what we want to hear. The only response, if the, Lord, if the Lord is gracious to us so that he makes us aware of that temptation, the only response to such an awareness is humility and a godly kind of self-distrust and a settled conscious conviction of this, that the glory that comes from God is the only kind that matters. I must not be concerned and wrapped up and, and consumed by a glory that comes from men, so that that determines how I will think, what I will say, what I will do. Would you agree that if if our desire is to be popular among men, that we will necessarily be put at odds against the approval of our God? This is 1 John 2.15, isn't it? Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, The love of the Father is not in him. If you crave the respect and honor that comes from the world, you love the world. That's what it is to love one, to choose who you will love, whose love will drive you. This is why Jesus can set the two at odds with each other here in 41 and 42, where he says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know you that you do not have the love of God within you. These are the opposites that are pit against each other and we have to choose. Who will we love? In other words, 
Whose glory will we live and die for? The final evidence levied here by our Lord for the accusation of unfaithful steward was in a way already brought up by Jesus when he mentioned the scriptures in verse 39. But he, he comes back to it. He's effective. He knows who he's talking to. And he ends this section with a final specific accusation because he knows that it will strike most deeply at them and expose most deeply their hypocrisy. In in John 9, they're going to mock a blind man that Jesus heals by saying this to him about Jesus. You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. Listen to this. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. What a thing to say. about the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's certainly true, isn't it? Where he comes from, you don't know. But you hear in their voice there when they're talking to that man, you hear the certainty and the confidence in their voice as to their connection to Moses. And Jesus says in verse 45, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one. (laughs) There is one who accuses you. Moses on whom you have set your hope. But what we need to see this morning is the reason for it. The reason for the accusation that he gives us in verse 46. Listen to how he continues. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Do you hear it? If you believed Moses. If you you believed Moses, you would believe me. And the reason for the necessary connection is because Moses wrote of me. I wonder, could we say this? Could could we put it, could we say this? If I read Moses and I don't get how he is said to be writing of Jesus, then I have some work to do in understanding what the Old Testament is. Could we say that on the basis of a claim like this? I think we can. And certainly we don't have time remaining this morning to deal with all of that, do we? But let me tell you, something greater than gold or silver is washing past your feet if you are reading the Old Testament and unable to see the ways that it itself is intending to point at Christ. So here's what you need to do. You ready? You have a pen? You need to go, you need to move, and you need to go take seminary classes. You need to learn Hebrew. It's going to take some time. You need to research who are the trustworthy voices to listen to that have spent their whole careers understanding this and honed their ability to explain it. That will help you to to grasp the Old Testament's role in the story of Christ. That's what you need to do. Now, I'll warn you, of a temptation. A few months into that process, you're going to start to have very unrealistic daydreams. You're going to start to wish that there were another way. Okay? You may think, how nice it would be if I was just in a local church whose elders had the time 
and training and were willing to do all this work for me and then to just let me sit down and have them lead me through all of this and in a way that's understandable. And what if they would do that and they wouldn't even charge me tuition and they wouldn't even take a weeknight away from me, dare I even be so um, demanding, but if they would even do it right before the very church service that I'm already going to be attending anyway, I mean, how could I even think of asking something so important and so convenient? Who do I think I am? So recognize that that temptation will come about three months into your process, okay? Do you see where I'm going with this? Our very next adult Sunday school series is going to be exactly on this. It starts March 27th. It's a study on the place of the Old Testament within God's revelation. The way that Jesus can say, Moses wrote of me. If you've just become accustomed to not making that hour a part of your family's life, there are some legitimate reasons, but I want to encourage you to reconsider. We don't want to make it a habit unless circumstances require it. We don't want to make it a habit in this short life of ours to pass on the sorts of rich opportunities that God chooses graciously to provide to us. So that's all that I'll say about that. I I want to end before we prepare to share the Lord's Supper together by returning to the question of approval. Whose approval do we seek? When John told us in 1 John not to love the world, he followed it with a very practical reason. He said, don't love the world because the world is passing away. The things the world loves, the things the world chases, it's passing away. If there is one good thing that has come from the events of the past couple of years, it's more than one. But one of them has to be this. We've been given a chance in our own lifetime to realize just how quickly everything can change. What is normal in the world, what is right according to the world, what is acceptable to the world, things like that can seem like they're just set in stone. They will always be that way. And what we've learned is that overnight, they're just not. It happens that fast. You know what that means? That means this cannot be the place that we decide to set our standards upon. It can't be that. If we are going to follow after our Lord who has purchased us, then our gaze is going to have to follow his. We will have to decide that the approval of our Father in heaven really is all that matters. We're going to have to remember what Jesus told us when he said that when the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we we cry out to you together this morning, asking for your mercy and your grace upon your people. We are washed by the blood of your Son. We are justified in your sight because of your mercy, because of his perfection. If you are for us, who can be against us? And yet even still, we find ourselves in such moments of weakness where we are tempted to question your sure word. We're tempted to doubt your 
your promises and your power to make good on your promises. We're tempted to question your warnings and your commands. Father, forgive us for these failings. And we pray that you would continue to preserve and to shepherd your people. You are our great shepherd. We thank you for the promises. We thank you for who you are. The unchangeable nature of your glories and your perfections, which is the basis for all of our hopes. Thank you, Father. Please protect and guide us in these things as we go forward. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.